Hi, I'm your host Jun Won Park, and you're listening to When Stripes Collide, a podcast about intersectionality and diversity within the Korean diaspora. So please introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, hey, uh, I'm Ben Coase. I am a South Korean American adoptee from Minnesota. I was born in Sokcho, South Korea. Um, I've been living in Korea roughly 10 years. Uh, halfway in between there, I went back. Uh, I was living for from 2016 to, or sorry, 2012 to 2016 over here. Um, and then I moved back to the States and did my master's in Chicago. Um, I was in an accelerated program for social work. So after I finished that, um, I moved back to Korea. So my program was about a year. So I came back again in 2017. So uh, a little bit split halfway in between, but I've been over here, you know, a decade. Um, for work, I'm an admissions consultant. And outside of that, I do uh, adoptee advocacy organizing um, over here more so in the mainframe of like uh, social welfare reform and um, laws, I guess, and policies um, more so around uh, access um, to birthrights, records, stuff like that, uh, right to ancestry. Um, I mean, there's a million other issues that that touches on. Maybe it'll come up while we're talking. Um, yeah, and I do work through an organization right now called Ibyangin. And we're all adoptees hailing from around the world. A lot more of my seniors are uh, longtime activists. They've been in the game all like, you know, a decade plus, something like that. Um, but yeah, if we want to talk about, I know we we're, before we got started, like politics, my personal is very political. Um, outside of that, I'm a, I'm a B-boy, been involved in hip hop culture, been breaking for about 14, 15 years. Um, I also write music. Um, being from Minnesota, you know, folk music and uh, punk music were really informative to my identity. And I know we'll touch on that later. Uh, I also skate as well, too. So, yeah, just kind of a hodgepodge of like um, social work, <laughs> um, art, etc., community building. Absolutely. So before we get into your very multifaceted life, I wanted to touch a little bit upon your early life. So you say that you're an adoptee. Uh, where were you born in South Korea, and when did you arrive in the United States? Yeah, so in my, um, I was originally born in Sokcho, South Korea, um, and I was adopted when I was six months old. I was adopted in 1988, so this is like a really kind of turbulent time, especially within uh, intercountry adoption, because there was an article that came out that kind of pointed out how how is South Korea hosting the 88 Olympics and still sending children abroad? And there was a big spotlight kind of showing like this supposedly developed or more developed nation now is still sending children abroad. And this wasn't for a small amount of money. Um, but yeah, to go back a little bit on my lineage and, you know, I don't know how familiar your audience is with adoptee experiences. Most of us uh, aren't in contact with natural family members. Um, more commonly known as birth families. I can touch on that vocabulary later. But uh, in my case, like I met my mom and brother um, with my adoptive parents when I was 11 years old. So my lineage, at least on my mother's side, actually goes back to Cheju Island. Um, so my mother was actually a Hanyo. And that's kind of informed like a lot of my reasoning for 
moving back to Korea. Otherwise, I grew up in like Duluth, Minnesota, so like northern <laughs> Minnesota, predominantly white, eighty-eight thousand people in the city. It's really similar to Sokcho, actually. It's kind of yeah. that my hometown is like shows those has those sort of parallels. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, Minnesota. How did you arrive in Minnesota? Were you did you move there? Immediately when moving to, arriving to the U.S., what was that sort of process like? Uh, just moving to the U.S. Give me a gist of, uh, or, or just give me some clarity about how that process was like. Yeah, I mean, like, so um, I'm not going to go super into detail about the long and complicated process that is intercountry adoption, because this is like, I guess uh, I'll quote the historian Arissa O. Uh, she would say that there's three different ways of intercountry adoption. And so I would be considered third wave, which means that I had access to Korean culture and language growing up, which I'm sure we'll touch upon later. Uh, I don't remember it because I was a baby, but what I can mm -hmm. tell you is that um, during the eighties, there were, this is the peak year of intercountry adoptions. And at least from a monetary sense, and um, I'm going to quote Dr. O again to uh, around 20 million U.S. dollars was being put back into the Korean economy um, as far as babies over the course of like, I guess, one, seven years now, right, um, of inter-country adoption because Korea is still sending children abroad. Uh, 200,000, I think, is the official number that is put out there. And that would be really hard to prove because a lot of the nature of many of these adoptions were records might have been falsified. Um there's maybe some adoptions that weren't fully reported. There's a lot of ethical issues in the development of like this pseudo social welfare structure. Mm -hmm. In my case is like, um, I got on a plane, like so many other babies in the eighties. Um, and there's usually what happened is that you had like, uh, maybe families or people visiting Korea and airlines actually, interestingly enough, would like reimburse flight tickets if people, took babies and brought them over and just looked after them on the plane ride back. And then the children were handed off to adoptive parents. That's kind of what happened in my case. So I arrived in Minnesota, six months old. I was put up for adoption when I was two months old, actually. And um, my adoption went through Lutheran Social Services on the Korean side of things, um, Eastern. Yeah. Now, before we delve a little bit more into your experience, I just wanted to know, I was looking at some of the statistics the other day, and I found that the top 10 locations for Korean adoptees in the U.S. historically were all kind of located generally in the northern parts of the U.S. So it didn't even really matter whether the location was in the northeast or in the northwest. It just kind of was broadly in the northern parts. So that includes states like Washington to Maine or like Massachusetts, Connecticut, Minnesota, Wisconsin. Do you know the reason for that? Yeah, I can say there's like necessarily a formalized reason for that. But I mean, mm -hmm. again, you got to think like post-Korean War, 1950s, right? Um, I'm going to get into some like theoretical frameworks here. You have like U.S. forces coming to Korea in line with Cold War politics. So you would look at the like geopolitical relationship between Korea and the United States. Yeah. And so two, the two thirds of us were sent to the States, uh, and actually predominantly mostly, I would say to Minnesota, it's the highest per capita in the world, mm -hmm. at least from my knowledge, um, of adoptees, um, South Korea is also the, 
uh, longest um, sending in program for intercountry adoption. The first uh, adoption agency called Holt, Holt Family Services. Um, they literally have like set up the framework for intercountry adoption programs mm-hmm. around the world. Um, regardless of how people feel about that, uh, I have certain feelings about that, of course, too. My, my background's also in international, international social welfare. So um, as far as like to answer your question, um, given that it was sort of like the wild, wild west as things were getting set up, a lot of the time it was like a matter of language accessibility, right? I mean, um, preceding that it was like post-war, you had mixed race children, which in a ethnically homogenous society like Korea, um, I don't know how to put this quick, but it's just almost like a death sentence. Like there's no way you, you would have been able to fit in back then. There are cases of like first wave, uh, mixed race children that were over here that like got lit on fire. Right. 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 Heavily bullied. Um, and, the, and right after the war, it's like, they're just literally in the classic definition of what you would think of an orphan on the street. So um, that differs largely versus like second wave, which would be like during the 1970s, which is when, you know, 51% of the workforce was actually women in factories. And there's no way that you can take a child into a factory. Right. And then um, as far as like during this process is like, if you spoke English well enough to kind of like navigate cross-culturally, you could do a lot of the negotiate, negotiating with children and this kind of structure of sending children abroad became more formalized in the 1970s, right? Which is when the four major adoption agencies were created. Um, it just so happens. And even like the caseworker that was in charge of the, my case of when I met my mom, um, I, her name, I believe is Mrs. Han. She spoke English very well. And I think she had ties to Minnesota and I think there's a lot of other like uh, social workers at the time. You, know, you wouldn't ever say that by licensure status, but just by the fact that you could navigate these interactions. And I think um, on top of that, there's like these Christian organizations uh, like Lutheran Social Services yeah. that were largely based in you know the Midwest, predominantly Minnesota. And there's this like sort of like Scandinavian, you know, <laughs> goodwill nature of the people know about Minnesota nice and stuff like that too. Right, right, I think right. That kind of helps influence this just like the relationships of who was there in the beginning to set up like sort of those invisible ties and i think that a lot of it just happened to be in the midwest and minnesota right so there was a sort of yeah there's a sort of precedent there so uh there were the ties to minnesota early on and those just kind of lingered on for decades basically yeah well it's kind of like if you have like the wheelbarrow theory if you mm-hmm. just keep on going down it eventually gets more and more worn in yeah so that's my understanding other people might have more robust understandings i've done a lot of like talking and researching on this and this is the best like sort of answer that i've been able to sort of formulate that's that's yeah that's perfectly comprehensive i i wanted to know a little bit more about your personal experience so a lot of adoptees maybe around your age have gone through a wide range of experiences growing up in the U.S., right? Some might have felt, you know, not yeah. really connected to their Korean culture, but didn't think it was all that important. Others might have felt, you know, similarly that they weren't connected to Korean culture, but they felt a certain void and they felt ostracized as a result of not seeing anybody that looked like them 
how would you maybe not super broadly but just in a general sense uh how would you have described your experience did you feel more ostracized uh was it not that much of a concern for you when it came to your identity growing up and then you know maybe how might that have developed you know were you always conscious of it were you not always conscious of your identity just give me a general sense of what that was like growing up yeah i mean it's kind of hard to, to generalize this and I, before i i speak on this i want to just really uh give a little bit more context on the last topic we were just talking about uh, minnesota has some of like the best social welfare funded social welfare programs in the country and if you look mm -hmm. at historically like refugee resettlement programs there's a lot of Hmong people um you know from the vietnam war that are actually you know across the midwest specifically minnesota california wisconsin so this should this also falls in line if you think about that theoretically um about like why a lot of adoptees in yeah. minnesota so to transition mm -hmm. into your topic you're asking me about like adjusting growing up um i don't want to speak on behalf of all adoptees because that's simply impossible i can speak on behalf of my experiences and for other people i think that are adopted um, for other people that are listening that think about adoptee experiences, I, I never want to rob other people's like uh, process on how they frame that. So I really want to emphasize that. And as I've alluded to before, there's three different waves, right? And some people, there's other frameworks you can look at that through, uh, through too. But um, across 15 different countries uh, that received adoptees, so you gotta there's so much that goes into this as far as not only personal disposition biology uh country that you're adopted to support systems age policies resources all these different things um for those of you that don't know i've kind of alluded to it but you know northern minnesota and minnesota of all places is very predominantly white and caucasian and i think across the board you could speak my parents are caucasian too of course and my you know, direct nuclear family. Um, a lot of adoptees share a similar narrative. Um, and you could say there's varying degrees of cultural competency in there as far as being exposed to Korean culture. Uh, when I talked earlier about being third, considered third wave, I mean, it's really interesting to think about first and second wave where a lot of, I think, adoptee experiences, people will talk about their family members saying like, no, you're not Korean, you're one of us, mm -hmm. which is, I think, for a lot of us, not actually how our experiences play out on the ground level. In my case, I was always like really cognizant and almost like painfully aware that I look different. Um, and, you know, when you're a kid, you just kind of want to assimilate and be like people around you. And I'm not saying that there weren't wonderful people around me in my community. Uh, at school or friends that just kind of accepted me for how I was. But there is something psychological, I think, invalidating about seeing someone, whether that be a family member or a friend that looks like you, um, and it sort of normalizes your own experiences just by the way you look. Like, I think that I grew up, despite with a lot of good support systems around me too and people, that there's no way that anyone could have ever framed in me at such an early age some of the racialized experiences that I had. Um, this includes like racial slurs, hearing stuff like, you know, go back to where you came from, chink, 
Goop, like the whole laundry list mm-hmm. of like, and I think when I was younger, um, when I encountered situations like that, I didn't know how to process that, nor did I feel comfortable talking to my family members about that. Cause how would they understand? And when you experience those things as, as a young person, you, you don't want to be seen as different, right? So it's really hard to talk about things, especially when you don't have the language or you have no positive role models around you to sort of frame those experiences in, I think like a healing and helpful way. Right. So I think there's a younger version of me. That's very, that was very frozen and, you know, traumatized, you know, and and there's levels to this too. Um, But on the flip side, I would say, again, I don't want to be unfair about this. There were plenty of people I think that were kind around me too. Um, But as I've gotten older, I've also realized that like having those experiences have allowed me to have a greater, I don't know, pool of like empathy and compassion for other people's experiences and really expanded like, I think my ability to relate to other people. Before we got started, you talked about this idea of intersectionality. When I talk to a lot of my adopted friends around the world and specifically Korean adoptees, because again, highest per capita in the world, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think a lot of them, if they've been able to process their identities and later on in life, this is more of a trend, right? Like if you get to college or you're lucky enough to have a high school teacher that talks to you about AAPI, Asian American experiences, a lot of that starts to make sense. And when I think about what adoption is, it fits into this narrative of immigration. You know, there was specific refugee resettlement acts in like the 1950s that allowed us in on special visas if we were being adopted by, you know, parents over here. Um, To allude a little bit back on all these different subcultures like skateboarding, music, hip hop culture. Um, I look back at it now as these were ways that like I was creating not only space for myself, but other people, I think that felt that their experiences were different that were kind of like on these like uh, sort of like outlaw cultures, but it was an active form of everyday resistance by through art, right? And the most direct way that I think I was relating to like maybe the white kids around me was that these were the kids that were also maybe they felt like outcasts or like black sheep. So they were creating space through music and art. And as I got older, I think that transitioned very easily into hip hop because uh, hip hop culture, punk rock culture, um, they're both countercultures. Mm-hmm. And even if you look at some of the histories going back to, you know, the late seventies, eighties, a lot of people in these two different scenes were, you know, bumping shoulders with each other in certain spaces. So I think these things have been very formative in sort of normalizing, you know, having to navigate an amalgamation of identities for me. And I know when I talk to a lot of my other friends, whether they be like, you know, uh, Hmong, you know, second generation 1.5 refugee people, right. Um, you think about where the place where hip hop culture and, and the music comes from is a black art form too, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. you look at like the the legacy of like um, civil rights movement, et cetera. We could take it really far back. I won't, but you can see that there's these beautiful moments of like diff- like cross cultural integration and exchange. That doesn't mean that that doesn't come without complicating factors. But again, just being able to participate in these 
spaces that kind of forced me to think intently about my identity, to grapple with that and to normalize it and hear other people's stories through music and art, how they formulated their own identities. And it's, it's more like a place where you can create yourself, right? So in a sense, all these different things sort of, I mean, they saved me, you know? I know it sounds cheesy, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about your parents. So did your parents ever attempt to ground you in Korean culture um, based on what resources they had access to or maybe what little or maybe high level of knowledge they had? Yeah, I think my parents are both really intelligent people. And I think I, first of all, I love them and they are my parents, right? Uh, and I definitely know that they wanted to make sure that I had access to Korean culture and language if I chose so. And this is more in line again with this like third wave of, of adoptees, right? So, uh, growing up, I went for like five years. I went to a Korean language culture and immersion camp in Hackensack, Minnesota. It's called like, uh, Concordia language villages. So I went to, uh, it's called Sup Sogeosu, which is Lake in the woods. There's all different like language villages, Spanish, French, anything you could think of. There's probably a language village for it. But I think most importantly for me during that time was just being around other ad adopted people and seeing other people that like had similar experiences, one, and then two, being able to talk to other people um, about, you know, like racialized experiences. And my parents were like very, they didn't force it on me. They asked me if I wanted to go. My first time back to Korea was like, you know, 2000, 2001. And um, after that, because I had been able to meet my mom and brother, which my adoptive parents had always been, especially my dad, they'd always been looking because they thought that maybe I'd want to know someday. That really gave me an anchor back to Korea because my life didn't start in America. It started over here, right? And I think I'm really grateful to my parents that and, and you know some of it like i've talked to them about is it's not easy it's, i think being a parent i have no ref, real reference point for that but for them to support that to support support me being back in korea um at no point could ever feel a sense of resentment other adoptees that i've talked to like their, their parents don't support that or they like I mentioned, like first and second wave experiences of adoptees, like it's just there is no Korean identity, it's just a race. But that's always been like an ever present part of my life. And sort of like putting those puzzle pieces together, like to me, I look at it almost at least the way I've looked at my identities is just like you have a all like random puzzle pieces and you don't know what the picture is supposed to be, but you're kind of putting it down as you go. And then it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, you get older and you do more of the work and, and talk to other people and their experiences and learn more, it, it starts to kind of make a cohesive picture. And I can really say that like my, my parents, especially of all people, they've always supported that. Uh, they've never said yeah. that I could do any of like the art forms or crafts that I'm engaged in. Um, I feel really lucky. I'd probably be a way worse off person if I, if I hadn't had their, support and unconditional love. I'm not saying it was like always perfect, but I'm not someone that is like looking at myself or other people and judging people off of like, was it perfect? It's like, no, it's, I care about people's effort, you know, <laughs> for myself too. <laughs>
let's talk about you moving to Korea. So you said that you had visited Korea in 2000, 2001. So around when you were 12, 13 years old? 11 years old. Time. 11 years old. Okay. Yeah. So that was your first time. Did that affect maybe you deciding to move back to Korea or move back to Korea later in your life? Uh, what was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, 100%. Forever changed like the blueprint of who I am. It put down the blueprint of who I am as a person. Right. Um, right. So, something that I want to like be very like direct in saying is like for your audience that's listening, um, and I don't mean this in a, an aggressive way, but it's I, I think a lot of the time adoptees get asked, have you met your, your family, right? Okay. And yeah. for I think a lot of this, I think your audience should understand that the majority of us that will never be on the table, just due to a lot of complicating factors, mm -hmm. uh, which is also I think related to like some of the access work that I've talked about and like the organizing work I do over here. Um, but it's like not your right to know that. So when you ask that, it's like you you don't know if this person's going through currently going through that or has some trauma related to that. And it's like mm -hmm. to treat that as such a light question is, is, is a little bit thoughtless, actually. So I, I would just ask people to be sensitive about when they ask that. I'm okay with sharing my story. Uh, more specifically, I have a pretty open door policy with other adoptees because I hope that at least my experiences might be able to help other people. I don't want to ever give people a sense of false hope. A lot of people that I know that are in reunion it actually becomes a lot harder and there's so much like uh, emotional lifting and it's not that you get answered questions you actually get more questions i know in my case that was certainly true i don't view those questions as bad but different and certainly more complicated i would also add that being an adoptee i don't view my life as better or worse i would also precaution people to not ever use that language with adoptees i can't say that because you know adopted friends i grew up with like are are dead or hurt themselves, or maybe were abused or dealt with drug addictions. And I, I, I would never say their lives are better. I've, or worse even for that matter. There are community members of, of adoptees that are you know deported back to Korea over here. And it's really hard to look at this as a blanket statement of better or worse, right? So for me, out of respect for my community members and other people's experiences, I just have to say it's different. That being said, I can say that in my case, specifically coming back to Korea and referring back to the blueprint of my identity, um, it's like being able to see my mom and knowing the courage she had to meet me along with my, my brother at the time, with my adoptive parents with me is like, she's one of the greatest inspirations in my life. Um, and that the, there's a lot of shame um, in stigma around intercountry adoption in the context of Korea. And I could have never known that until I came over here and lived over here. And I'm not saying this to admonish Korean people or society. Um, but there's just a lot of like identity politics and stuff that comes into like patriarchal Confucian family values. Um, 90 percent of us since the late 1980s come there's we're pretty much from single moms in korea mm -hmm. 
So yeah. I, when I look at intercountry adoption and adoption in general, it's a women's rights issue too. And social welfare issue, obviously, when we talk about things like family preservation. Um, but seeing a face that looks like you, being, in my case, having a clear understanding that my mother loved me and that it was hard for her, like the hardest thing she ever did uh, and the intention behind that to try and give me a better life with more opportunity. Like in this sense, like that forever cemented this like connection that I have back to this place, right? She did the best she could um, with what she had at the time she was given. Um, yeah. So having that experience alone and having that connection is something that I think has driven me very far in life. Did you always envision that you would eventually move back to Korea, especially as a result of you having this long desire to reconnect with your roots, with your Korean identity? Yeah. I mean, that was never a question in my mind. I you, was didn't, gonna find you, didn't, you didn't even ponder the fact that you would stay in the U.S. You knew for a fact that you were going to move to Korea just growing up, that that was your destiny. I think there was like obviously some back and forth that went in my head, but it's like, you know, I, I ended up going into my undergrad is in social work. Right. And that's like mm -hmm. the amalgamation of like good people that I had in my, to me, social work just means like loving other people as corny as it sounds, right. but doing this right. in, in like a, you know, academic framework, professionalized way. Like we have a code of ethics too, of course, um, a combination of, you know, meeting my family and, and experiencing like my culture and, you know, language and place of origin, um, and getting all these like little puzzle pieces and putting them together. Um, and as I've gotten older, understanding that this was part of like a social welfare system and policy, right? Like international policy and geopolitics. Um, there was always something just very magnetic that drew me back here. Um, and maybe somewhat naive to have, to think that I could like have, I think a lot of like adoptees have maybe a fairy tailed idea of what it means. And maybe other people that like have consumed media about adoption It's there's this cotton candy narrative of like, oh yeah, better life, more opportunity, come back to Korea, meet family everything's happily ever after when actually, as I've already said, it becomes more complicated, but I knew that I had to come back. And in this sense, I feel like the sense of like Han, you know, like Chong, like to my family, even if, even if I'm estranged with them now, that doesn't change how I feel. I think that's more of a statement and testament to my own character and, and the people that raised and loved me. So you mentioned that you were able to meet your family as part of the puzzle pieces that you were putting together. Obviously, as we've already talked about, adoptees aren't always in the position to meet their family, nor even if they had the opportunity, would they want to meet their family at times. But you went ahead and did so under, I'm assuming, your own account. So what might have led you to doing that? And how was that made possible? How was it possible for you to reconnect with your family? Yeah, I, so... As I said before, my dad had always been looking because he thought that someday maybe I would want to be in contact. And mm, I remember yeah. it was like a Christmas present. I opened up like, you know, a present and there was like a Korean a shirt with like the Korean flag or like some sort of 
green shirt on there. And I was confused because as a kid, you don't want to get like clothes. Like, <laughs> but then my parents <laughs> said, Hey, if, if, if you would like Benjamin, like we, we can take a trip back to Korea and don't, please don't get your hopes up. But if it's possible, if we could find, you know, your, your family, you might be able to do that, but it, it's unlikely. And that was my, you know, first time back. And during that two weeks, while we were there, they, we actually found them. Um, so my parents asked me and I think they wanted to make sure it was on the table and it's as complicated as it is. Uh, for me, it's like clear as day as all these experiences really made my life more fulfilled and living over here. Uh, just a very, I have a very rich life that I'm, I'm very grateful for and I would not have it any other way. Uh, it's not my, my first time back, although it was 2000, 2001, I also came back in 2009 for a semester and I did like a, you know, study abroad program, um, through Yonsei and Wonju and making new friendships through that program too. Right. Um, and also feeling a, an affinity towards like the hip hop scene and breakers over here. These are, there's all these like different like grounding points that like kind of like drew me back here again and again. Um, this might not be the most sexy answer at this point in my life, but a lot more of it is just more pragmatic of having a job, you know, going through global pandemic. I know a lot of people really struggled, uh, to the furthest degree. I feel very fortunate that I was able to secure work during that time. I know not everyone's so lucky, so I just, I want to acknowledge that. But at this point, it's much more in lines with just being an adult and having a job and not going back and forth constantly. You have to, you can't have one foot in, one foot out. At some point you have to figure out a way to make it work on one side or the other. So that's why, what's kind of driving the experience now. What is your so current social circle looking like? What is your general social network looking like in Korea? Are you mainly affiliated with other adoptees or do you feel that you've gotten to intermingle quite well with the locals? What is that looking like? Yeah, I mean, you know, first and foremost, I think like having those friends from way back when, those relationships are always there. A lot of my friends are married now and have kids, so I don't really see them much anymore. Mm -hmm. But the yeah. love is always there. Um, I think it's like an amalgamation of like just random foreigners. And I will use the term migrants. You could talk about the term expat too. So if I'm going to be really honest, that just is like codified language for like privileged white person that moves to another country <laughs> and doesn't know what they're doing with their life. Sorry if that right. sounds cool, but there's like a, there is a racialized component yeah. to this. Um, so I kind of prefer also including the term like migrant in there too, just to show solidarity with other groups of people. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of it is through the breaking community. That's been like one of the biggest like support networks of like maybe other foreign breakers and these days a lot more Korean breakers. You, I don't know how much you know about breaking, but it's like you, it's, breaking is not just something you can like casually do. <laughs> you kind of have to be like all in it, you know. And Korea is like mm -hmm. historically since the early 2000s has been like uh, breaking capital of the whole world, right? So some of like the dopest b-boys come out of Korea. Um, and maybe I'm asking the obvious, but did breakdancing, did your early cultivation and the interest in breakdancing and hip hop, uh, all, was that also a motivating factor for you to move to Korea? Yeah. 
it's, it's definitely something that kept me over here. I, I had a crew that I was a part of um, since like 2012. We were active maybe until 2017, 18. Uh, and just I met people from all over the world that were living in Korea. Um, it's kind of hard to explain, but there's like, I and I, I hate to generalize this, but I think the way that like Korean people think sometimes are like more so in like boxes, like this is the Korean box. You're, you're in the foreigner box. Maybe mm -hmm. people that have more fluid thinking will blur the lines a little bit, but I mm -hmm. think that certainly feels true within, you know, um, whatever Korean subculture you're going to be a part of. Like there's these structures that exist and that's just kind of like part of the culture, whether that be however you want to frame that. Right. So I think that was kind of the point of like bonding together with a lot of like the foreign breakers over here. It's just like, we kind of needed like space for ourselves to come together and organize under that banner not to say that there aren't like plenty of really awesome and hospitable people within the breaking scene there are um the scene is still dope over here um but yeah it was at korean camp where i picked up <laughs> breaking two of the cooks were just like randomly <laughs> b-boys and they started teaching me stuff and taught me that it was a culture right and this is like a worldwide phenomenon that korea was blowing up at the time mm -hmm. when i went in the early 2000s to camp like mm -hmm. really really well known around the world so that made me like proud to be korean it made me proud of our people man so i had to come back and and, and train over here you know um and just to elaborate on this a bit more also just like through music right like when you meet other musicians like uh you know the poetry and spoken word community just being able to listen to other people and their experiences um i think the hardest thing about living here long term is that there's a battery life of most foreigners over here from one to four years, right? And so I've seen many cycles of like my closest friends come and then they they go back home or go wherever else they are gonna go in the world. And that's something that feels um, a little bit disjointing at times. So now being over here like a decade, it's like I'm a little bit more intentional, not because I don't think people are great. I love people, but you have to be a little bit more like selfish in the sense of like, I can't just keep on like cycling friends, you know, in and out that are just coming and going all the time. You need to have like solid support networks too. I'm also connected with adoptee friends and communities. I will say communities over here because it's, it's complicated. Like I think we all, all of us sort of know each other. Like there's a mainstay like network. And then there's a lot of adoptees that are over here just kind of doing their own thing that don't know anything maybe about like some of the organizations out here. Right. Um, I think it's also complicated too with adopted communities because we're all at different stages and points in like the way that we're processing our identities and what Korean culture means to us. And we're all at varying degrees of language ability and cultural understanding and how we feel about it. So, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of different friend groups. Yeah. And a lot of different communities and Korean friends too. Yeah, and you mentioned Korean friends as well. How are how do the locals it, it mix in your social social circle? What kind of role do they play? Are they a prevalent part of your social circle, or has there always been a friction there between yourself and the locals? Maybe due to certain social or cultural misunderstandings. Yeah, something that's like super obvious that we haven't touched on is language ability. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really speak Korean when I came over here, I knew like, you know, Hangul, 
but I didn't. I, I was like living in the countryside when I first came over here in like 2012. Yeah. Uh, like a, like a village of like 1,400 people. I came over through Epic, which is like um, the national like English teaching program. Um, this is right after finishing college, and I was so it's like I was kind of forced into a situation where I had to like be in a lot of uncomfortable situations. Um, I think one of the most validating things that a lot of adoptees will talk about will just be like that you look like everyone. So there's not the sense <laughs> of like hyper vigilance of like racialized experience. More so, it's in your thinking and linguistic and cultural understanding abilities where there's the friction that I think you're you're talking about. Right. Um, I think it all depends on the context of how you're meeting people, right? In my case, whether that be through social groups, through like university friends, or a lot of times you'll have a friend of a friend introduce you through dating. Um, mm. Eventually I would, you know, I moved to Seoul from out of the countryside and I studied like to level two, Korean at Yonsei. And then um, this was off the money I saved up and then I had to work again. And then uh, I saved up enough money and I went to like Sogang Ohakdong. Um, the language got so long and made it to level two and three and that mm -hmm. kind of uh from there like i'm more able to now have like conversations with people it really depends on the topic but uh, i can express myself with definitely a certain like foreign satori like param like i don't have great pronunciation <laughs> i gotta be critical of myself on that i mm -hmm. think there's also this thing in here too that as far as building relationship to, with, with locals or whatever, it kind of depends on the region you are in the country. I live yeah. in Seoul, so it's not so uncommon to see like foreigners over here or people with like more complicated identities. Right. And it's very like body, body, quickly, quickly. So it's like maybe people don't always have the time to sit down and navigate, you know, different linguistics in conversations, right? So. As far as like locals, you know, and I'm, I'm living in the Gangnam areas, like it's a little bit jarring sometimes because I think especially in this type of area, it, it feels like people are like trying to assess like, what can I get from this person? A lot of Korean culture and the way I think that it works over here, at least in like the modern day neoliberal capitalist form is uh, very transactional and very goal oriented. Mm -hmm. people's resource it's Korea doesn't really have natural resources it has people and the people are the resources so I, I don't want to place a value judgment on it. it's just Korea can't help but be the way it is because of there's this word called Sade Chui in Korean which means like larger superpowers have all, always influenced Korean society and culture and people the way right. that I experience on the personal level is can be sometimes very exhausting sometimes and so do you maybe see yourself in that sort of relationship with Korea, obviously being influenced by these superpowers? How, where do you see yourself in that sort of relationship? I view myself as Korean as mm -hmm. part of the diaspora, right? Scattering of seeds. Um, and I have a very strong affinity towards my Korean identity. And to me, it would not matter if every Korean person in the world said I wasn't Korean, just on the basis of having that anchoring point of my mom and brother. I'm Korean. Mm -hmm. uh, however, now you have, we have to keep this in a realistic context of being in Korean society and, ha and speaking Korean funny, right? 
and maybe doing certain things or not having an inherent cultural knowledge of certain things. I think a lot of uh, Korean culture is also based on like your lineage, right? In line with very specifically Korean Confucianism, right? So when that mm-hmm. lineage yeah. is sort of like cut, um, the context is a lot more confusing, right? Mm-hmm. So if I had yeah. to be like realistic about this, I, I'm Korean American, definitely. Uh, I, am I Korean? Korean? No. Um, it's complicated because I think maybe if you if you even ask Korean people what does it mean to be Korean, everyone's gonna probably give you a different answer. Some of it certainly embedded in that is like linguistic ability, but even it's you know as an adopted person, it's like crazy to think that I'm using terms like chong, right? Like this, the threads of energy that connect people together are Han. The historical vexation of like Korean people of our people having gone through really tragic moments in history and just sort of having to eat it and being invaded by world superpowers over and over again and still yet yeah. retaining this like somewhat like cohesive culture language history sense of identity i mean of course korea has its own like nationalistic mythologies like just as much as america would too about the way history goes down and yeah, that's a different topic altogether. But yeah, it's it's a compli- <laughs> it's complicated, right? I know how I feel. That might not always be the way that I'm read. Uh, I still grapple with that now. But um, what I what I would like to say to other people is like, you you have to be realistic because this this only goes to a certain you know degree. But if if you feel that way, it's like, well, what does it mean to be Korean to you? within reason right like you can't just racially culturally appropriate something like well i'm a korean person because yeah i feel that way i'm like tell how, so, how you know? yeah so it's all left up to the individual to decide whether or not or to what extent they feel connected to the korean identity i've had intense moments over here of extreme acceptance in intense mm-hmm. moments of extreme rejection. Mm-hmm. There's a huge polarity there. And a lot more of my experiences, mm-hmm. honestly, are just in between. As boring as that sounds. I, I think as people were I more... See. Yeah, we're more ingrained to like focus on the negatives. But I, have to, I always have to like get on myself for this. Is like, I've had a lot of beautiful moments over here where I definitely felt Korean and the people in the room read me as Korean too. So... I think it's really hard mm-hmm. for you have any like diasporatic group of people is like they go to let's use America because, you know, talking an American framework, right? Um, they move to America and they're like, oh, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm Korean or I'm 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 Hmong or I'm or I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like Chinese or even though I may be C or whatever. And they come back and they have to reconcile with the fact of like maybe when their parents first came over, Korea was a different place at a different time. And what that means and. That, that culture of fluidity has now been broken and when you come back it's like it's it's changed so it's you can't be in two places at once you know let's talk about the adoptee community so what are some organizations that are high in activity where you're at uh what are some concrete things that they're doing as well yeah i mean first and foremost like the service arm over here uh, and they deal most with like uh, 
birth family search goal Glover global overseas adoptees link they've been around for I think like two decades now um, and it's I mean it's just a miracle that they're still around uh, they help you know adoptees with dual citizenship f4 visas um, and they do a lot of work behind the scenes whether that be uh, you know language access translation um, once upon a time they were doing a lot more community like engagement as far as like having a picnic for adoptees to come together um, they're just a good like place that I think every most adoptees over here if they're connected to like organizations everyone will know about goal so shout out to goal um, before I was in Ibyangin and sorry to bring the focus on to the work that I'm involved but that's where I'm most engaged I was involved in a co-founder of this organization called speak solidarity political engagement adoptees Korea is just um, advocacy organizing policy sort of driven stuff again and our predecessors were actually this organization called ask adoptee Sol adoptee solidarity korea um and they were really like the four founders of like hardcore adoptee activism of, of having a critical lens of challenging this like cotton candy rainbow sunshine farts of like we're saving children and and sending them overseas to give them better lives like which is what the a lot of the adoption agencies kind of uh, focus on and um so i think there's this critical discourse that ask and other organizations like track um people like jane Tranka, that really challenged some of these like overarching dominant beliefs around adoption right um there's a lot of other organizations too that I think are more Korean run. Um, I'm kind of blanking on them right now, but they're out there. <laughs> on the policy side of things, what are policies that Korean adoptees would benefit from that these organizations are trying to advocate for? Okay, so this is where it gets tricky because I think my personal interest is much more on the context of social welfare within Korea right. and we're at around like under 300 babies per year, which is anywhere from like, I think it's like 300. Yeah. So anywhere from 20,000 up to like 40, 50,000 US dollars per baby. So it's still in the millions. Uh, these adoption agencies have never been fully audited. So if you want to talk about like transparency in the way of nonprofits, there's some huge red flags as far as ethics and best practices. Not only that, but like there's this like counsel, the counseling process of like single moms, the adoption agencies still do that, right? So as we look further in this direction, there's no way that inter-country adoption is, I mean, someday it's just going to stop, which I certainly hope for in the context of Korea, one of the most biggest economies in the world, right? That doesn't right. make any sense anymore with a country that has an irrecoverable birth rate. That being said, with all that background information, I'm much more focused on like domestic adoption and family preservation. That's what I care about. Right. Um, and so what policies can be implemented to bolster domestic adoption in Korea? If I, I already, yeah, I don't even want to start with domestic adoption. I think family preservation comes first. I think, okay. uh, and I think single parent families support because those are families too, right? Before we jump to the conclusion of adoption, just because it's been happening so long i really like to think in the lines of like social welfare frameworks at least how 
I'm thinking was trained. Right, because like family preservation is the yeah. is the fundamental issue at hand here. Yeah, and it's a women's rights issue as far as we're going to talk and talk about like abortion just being like legalized over here in the past couple of years. Um, I want to be careful. I think it was written into policy, but not fully passed. Don't quote me on that. Um, but what I do want to touch on is like in the most extreme cases, you have like domestic adoptees. Chongin was an adoptee about a year and a half, two years ago that was murdered by her adoptive parents. And the follow up mm -hmm. on that, she was under Holt's care, was horrendously bad. And I, and I mean this in no point of condescension, but like a lot of the times, I think the social welfare system over here, the practices are still being developed and it feels like several decades behind. Right. In the future, I'm very optimistic seeing the, what's happening on the ground right now. So I think it's hard for, if we think about like what international adoptees interests are, which are usually access to language, culture, records, family, that's a little bit different than I think like the way I personally feel about focusing on best practices within side Korea, because I think on the domestic side, adoption side of things or social welfare reform policies, there, there's not always a one-to-one -one match. Cause I think maybe a lot of adoptees don't feel a strong affinity towards the Korean side of things, or even understand civics or social welfare structures over here. So there's a disconnect. Mm -hmm. That's hard to sort of like disseminate from this side of things over to the US side of things, I think the direct thing that like people should be paying attention to as far as Korean Americans, probably like things like the Adoptee Citizenship Act, it passed through the House of Representatives and I got vetoed, I think it got shot down in the Senate basically, mm -hmm. but that's one yeah. of those things where it's like, probably shouldn't be deporting people back to Korea. Like that seems yeah. like a human rights issue at that point right let's let's look into that so the adoptee citizenship act what would that do specifically what are the uh, changes the concrete changes that that would make for the korean adoptee community in the u.s um this also comes with a lot of controversy too because i think there was a huge basically what it does is it gives uh adoptees citizenship um i can't Currently, right now, I don't know the exact years, right? But I think as it stands right now, I want to say it doesn't retroactively go back to, like, uh, I think adoptees in the early 80s, which is a lot mm -hmm. of the adoptees that are being deported back. Um, right. 1980s. So... Legislation like the Adoptee Citizenship Act still left certain things out and it still needed to include certain things to be inclusive to the entire Korean adoptee community. In essence, it would grant uh, adopted people citizenship. Right. But it yeah. doesn't prevent some of those older adoptees from being deported. So I think the complicating thing is that, like, again, you look at like the U.S. side of things and maybe not even maybe there were those of us that were adopted where our parents never filled out our citizenship paperwork and you might be put into a foster care system from that and from there uh depending on the state you're in too and if you get picked up and you realize that you never had your citizenship if the charge is extreme enough or based on a judge's discretion and this we're getting into federal judge territory now 
then you could be deported back. Yeah, so I mean, and that's definitely something that it's a uniquely U.S. problem. So the Citizenship Act, the Adoptee Citizenship Act would allow for adoptees to gain citizenship here. So in terms of an issue like that where older adoptees are being deported and other issues that Korean adoptees face, what do you think that allies can do to help Korean adoptees, whether they're in the U.S., whether they're in Korea, anywhere in the world, what can allies do to help Korean adoptees? So I want to touch on a point of like intersectionality here is like when we talk about immigrant narratives and stuff like that, I think the big fracture that happened internally with the Adoptee Citizenship Act is it wasn't looking at undocumented folks. So it felt right. like we were leaving them behind. And I think that that is for me personally, I think that's really important to look at that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the current iteration of people working on it do actually, they don't want to leave undocumented folks behind as well. Too. Right. Uh, I think something you can do is like, who are your local representatives? Contact them, say that you think it's important. I think on a more like direct individual, cause this feels really abstract. I think if you have an understanding of your own identity and Koreanness and the way that you create space for other people, that are processing their identities. I think that's important. Um, I think there's so many other things like what what are the issues? I mean, you come from, you know, poli sci public policy background. So if we're talking about things like access to healthcare, at language access, right, um, education, right, these all kind of sort of like, although they're their own separate bubbles, they all kind of hover together. I think being able to have um, You meet adopted people, just like some of the stuff that I pointed out before. And if you're just mindful about those conversations. Right. I think that's really helpful too. Especially about that one question regarding meeting biological family members, right? Have you, the question, have you met your biological family? That's something that you think that people should think about before asking, or maybe, maybe even refrain from asking entirely. Is that right? Yeah. I think unless you're kind of invited To hear about that and you don't have the like there's always exceptions to this. you might have the social capital because you're close with someone but i'm mm -hmm. thinking feeling like the right to have that conversation and access that information like i don't go up to people and ask them like do you have a good relationship with your mother and father or did they do something bad to you and how do you feel about that like i don't feel or tell me about someone in your family that has cancer and how that feels like you you never know like i've seen adoptees shut down when that question was asked and it, it feels right 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 bad it's like this casual question a lot of us are, are really hyper focused on trying to get any information around this right aren't you like opening wound of trauma and just like treating right, it like it's right. a light conversation uh right i might be a little bit more vindictive so if someone asked me and then i drill them back on it, it's like well you, you asked and now you're gonna get the full answer uh -huh. um, <laughs> support our rights and support our movements right Absolutely. Um, people want to donate to the organizations over here or support single moms groups. If you want to support Yi Byung-in, that would be great. Um, a lot of the work that happens over here on the Korean side of things is very ad hoc. We all have our own jobs and things to do. It's all volunteering. None of us are getting paid to do this. It's just you do it because it's kind of like the right thing to do. Right. right. Like our identities are all intersectional to this, right?
I think there's only really one more question that I wanted to ask you. So going back to your parents, do you know why your parents chose to adopt you? Yeah, I hate to put them on blast like this, but I don't think they mind too much. I They weren't able to have children of their own. And mm -hmm. I want to point out that, that like every family situation is different. And I also want to point out that like for adoptive parents that might listen to this, uh, and I mean this in the kindest way, it's like I think it's important if, if you can't have children that, that you get help for that if you feel you need it and process that. But also to understand that like, again, as adoptees, our lives don't start in America, right? And that wanting of a child and the creation of a new family should not come at the erasure of another. Um, and specifically to, to parents, you know, you, you gotta be mindful of like the systems and supply and demand that you're supporting a market that's like not ethical, right? Like there's so many records that have been falsified. Like these, uh, the adoption agency have never been audited before, right? And there's, mm -hmm. there's if you go back and, and do the research and reading on this, um, you could start with Tobias Hubinet if you want to. You could look up, you know, to save the children of Korea. I, already, I really like Arissa O's book because she really approaches it uh, to save the children of Korea from a historical mm -hmm. standpoint. There's just these narratives yeah. of like, like this racialized component of like we wanted a baby girl with like China doll almond eyes, like really mm. racialized or like it's really uncomfortable, right? Or like the good parent narrative, of like I'm saving an orphan child. It's like. Right, it's that sort of white savior complex that leads a lot of parents to adopting. And I don't, again, I don't want to like blanket statement across the board, right? Because I, it would just be nice of like, let me ask a challenging question. What's the difference between an adoptive family spending 40,000 US dollars, right? And I understand that that supports the social workers like administrative costs and their own salaries. What's the difference between doing that to adopt a child versus giving forty thousand U.S. dollars to a nonprofit that supports family preservation or supports single mom or, or parent families? And, and the uncomfortable answer is because you get a family out of that because there is emotional capital. That's what I'd like to challenge more, and not even an aggressive way. Just please, like, not. As I alluded to before, just because you're adopted doesn't mean your life is better, right? That, that's that's such a loaded thing to say, right? Or you say, oh, aren't you glad you're not aborted? It's like, I don't know. Like, I have a lot of friends, and I had my a lot of my own struggles. So it's mm – -hmm. and I don't want to tell people to not have families. That also feels equally crappy. But a lot of the time when we, we – there's this – they call it the, like, adoption triangle of, like, adoptee, um, original – parents and uh adoptive parents right yeah. but like i think a lot of the time within that like adoption triad like adoptee voices matter significantly less like we don't shape our own experiences clearly there's right. this dominant narrative that people in the west want children and why not go to developing nations to get them and right there's, there's a trend this is an industry that's that's never and i don't mean that we're like I, I'm not demonishing us to say that we're products, but we are part of like this neoliberal framework of immigration. That's a bit right uncomfortable to think about when you how removed people are from the process. Right. 
so this isn't meant as an opportunity for me or for you to beg on your parents but okay. i just want to put this in the right framework so your parents decided to adopt because they couldn't have any children but they had the opportunity or the possibility to adopt within their own local community right children need parents from all over the place yeah. so they chose you they chose to adopt a korean child do you think that that was influenced significantly or even uh, most mostly due to the fact that they had this sort of white savior complex that they may or may not have been aware of? I think that some of that could be there. I think it's just because at that point in the 1980s, adoption had become so normalized. I think people should also understand that Black Association of Social Workers at the time that basically said that adopting black children. And they were also very critical of inter-country adoption out of Korea. But in some sense, there was a lot of pushback of cultural genocide within uh, black communities, right? Yeah, but yeah, at yeah. At the same yeah. time, the Indian Child Welfare Act, I want to say 1978, but mm -hmm. late 1970s, um, this was passed. So this opened the floodgates. Mind you, on the Korean side of things, uh, Pak Chung-hee, the president over here, he started an export-based economy, and Chun Doo-won expanded upon that framework. So you literally have these like large like geopolitical forces and and policy-driven things that are driving everything to coalesce at the same time in quote unquote like a perfect way. So and for families that wanted to adopt, mostly middle upper middle class, once we're hitting in the '80s '90s territory almost impossible to adopt a white child. And then because of these protective measures, and I'm not saying anyone was wrong for doing this. Like, I think it was good that people were pushing back on this to be very clear, June. Um, mm -hmm. Black Association of Social Workers, Indian Child Welfare Protection Act, uh, Indian Child Welfare Act, like these were protective measures of preventing domestic adoption in America. So why don't we go to the more or less regulated Wild, wild east, so to speak. Right, right. <laughs> wild, wild east. I like that. Yeah. Uh, so it was a sy systematic or systemic thing that went into it as well, right? So your parents in many ways or in many aspects didn't really even have a choice. Their only option to adopt, uh, maybe their most efficient option to adopt was to go to Korea or was to look at a Korean adoption, adoption agency, correct? Affordable and cheap. It was there. I, I mean, I... I gave like my capstone presentation for grad school on intercountry adoption and it was way more scary for me to give that presentation to them because I was being very critical on intercountry adoption as a system at the time. And I saw them struggling with some of it and I really loved them because they listened to it and they thought about it and I know it made them, them uncomfortable because no one wants to participate in a corrupt, immoral system. So what I would say... I, like, I can't give them a perfect score. Remember before, man, I said, I, I'm not looking for perfection. But um, they did the best with what they could do at the time that they were given. And they made the best decision that they thought was available. I'm not going to fault anyone ever for that. But then it's like, once we know these things, are you, please stand in solidarity of us. You know, not only our experiences, but not that it's just your child, but also that this fits into 
geopolitics and social welfare. Right, this very great framework, right? So you zoom out a little bit and it's all these different things that are going on that kind of led to how your life panned out and how your experiences were forged. Yeah. Yeah. I, I put back and challenged them on it, of course, but um, yeah. they're still my parents. It's like, I'm not perfect either, so I still love them, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just, you know, gauging from what you're saying, their mindset and their perspective on adoption, especially inter-country adoption, has changed quite a bit or drastically quite even. True. Yeah. I, I think it's hard because for a lot of our parents, it just stops with us. I would like to challenge parents to think and our communities think that it doesn't stop with us. This, this fits into a larger scope of issues that I think are really necessary to think about when we talk about what are the best interests of a child, right? What is, what is child protection? What is protection of societies or our world's most vulnerable people look like? And I'm also not saying that the United States has the best child welfare system. I certainly would not want to model any other, like, there was a new nation that developed that. I wouldn't say my, model it off of <laughs> US, the U.S. system by any means, man. <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that we didn't get to discuss today? Um, I, I guess I would just ask you, you hearing this, like, what what's it like for, for you personally to, I don't know how many adoptees you know or... You seem like a yeah. I'm going to person, be so. yeah. Uh, very frank. I, I I don't know any adoptees personally, like in my own personal life. Like I may have met a couple, but as far as really really getting to know somebody, and I, that might just be due a lot due to the fact that I never really had an opportunity to really get to know any personally, just because of where I live just because of my own personal circumstances, but this is something very, very new to me still. And for you to give the sort of perspective that you've just given over the past hour has been very, very enlightening. And I've learned so much. And maybe you might think this is BS or whatever, but there were a couple of things that you talked about that I think that I personally relate to a lot as well. You know, uh, you said earlier in your life that you gravitated towards hip hop because it was kind of a counterculture and you grew up around a community with people that didn't really look like you so you naturally felt inclined to move to or towards that sort of counterculture i mean i lived in south texas for over a decade almost 12 years and i can kind of relate to that sort of situation where i didn't really have anybody that really looked like me growing up and so a big thing part of my life was hip-hop and so I can talk about that for forever and for a very long time. But uh, hip hop played a role in my life as far as personal development is concerned. And a lot of that was due to the fact that I did feel a lot of times as an outsider and I saw hip hop as an outsider culture. So um, there were a lot of different aspects of your life that I think a lot of the audience can relate to, whether or not they know a lot of adoptees in their own lives or whether or not they are an adoptee. I think that there are a lot of universal um, aspects of your life that a lot of people can really look at, look at upon themselves. So I'm really thankful that you were able to come onto the show today. And I was really, really grateful for the kind of insights that you provided about your own personal life and how that fits in with the adoptee community and how the adoptee community fits in within, within an international framework 
of inter-country adoption and geopolitics. So thank you so much for all of that. Ebyang International Network aims to support an infrastructure of adopted overseas Koreans that impacts policy and public discourse on issues related to child and single parent welfare, family preservation, and the rights of adoptees in South Korea. If you would like to learn more about what Ben and I just discussed, you can visit Ebyang International Network at ibyangin.org. That is ebyangin.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of When Stripes Collide. Stay tuned for more.